0: Hi everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here with another China History Podcast episode. To my very long-time listeners, today's episode might sound familiar. See, back in March 2012, I covered this topic, but ended up removing this one from the back catalog later on. Long story behind that. Sorry, I can't give you any details. Interesting though they are. Everything in today's version has been refreshed and re-recorded and optimized for our modern times, and I'm bringing this topic back to the permanent collection of CHP episodes. So without further ado, let's get down on it. The Ma's were several Muslim families of warlords and generals who got their start during the late Qing Dynasty, and then went on to play a co-starring role in China's Civil War that ended in October 1949. When the PRC was established, these Chinese Muslim warlords were able to build their respective military and economic power bases thanks to the Qing dynasty's reliance on them to hold down the fort in that rugged and wild northwest part of the country. As we saw from the series that covered the Taiping Rebellion, the Qing army. Mainly consisted of the eight Manchu banners or bannermen and the mostly Han Chinese Green Standard Army. As a military force, you wouldn't want to mess with them during the 17th and 18th centuries, but come the 19th century, their fearsomeness lost a lot of its edge. And when the country was beset by war and rebellion, the Qing military couldn't rise to the occasion, and this opened the door to local private militias out in the provinces to step up and do the job for the emperor. We remember Zeng Guofan, Zhong Zongtang, and Li Hongzhang from their roles in quelling the revolts that plagued China during the 1850s, 60s, and 70s. And their success on the battlefield and the political implications led to a whole slew of later warlords who followed in their wake, Yuan Shikai, Duan Qirui, Zhang Lin, Wu Peifu, and Yan Xishan, to name a few. And out in northwest China, this opened the door for men like the Ma's to take advantage of this new dynamic that allowed for military governors and their personal armies to act as proxies for the imperial military. And because this far west portion of China was so distant from the center of all the action, they were able to take advantage of this as well. And they ran their respective territories as personal fiefdoms. The Maas, and there were 14 of them that I will mention in this episode, were from China's Hui ethnic minority. Of the 56 recognized ethnic groups in China, ranked first, of course, are the Han Chinese. And they comprise something like 95% of the population in China. Following the Han are the Zhuang, who can be found mostly in Guangxi, but also the surrounding provinces of Guangdong, Yunnan, and Guizhou. And ranked third, just slightly ahead of the Manchus, are the Hui. They're actually an ethno-religious group. They all share the same religion, that is, Islam. So many of them were surnamed Ma, and this came from the first syllable of the transliteration of the Mohammed surname in Chinese. Mohammed in Chinese is pronounced Muhan mo de, using the character mu instead of ma. But ma is one of the most common Chinese surnames, and this was the one that was adopted by so many Hui Chinese. If you remember the Muslim Admiral Zheng He, who made those famous seven voyages during the early Ming Dynasty, His name was Mahe. And over the centuries, these Chinese Muslims intermarried with other Central Asians, mostly Persians, Turks, or Mongols. Other ethnic groups, such as Uyghurs, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, they were Muslim too, but they weren't Hui people. They were Turkic or Persian. The Hui people today number a little over... 10 million and though they're spread out all over the country most of them are still concentrated in China's northwest ningxia has enough of a concentration that the official name of the province is the ningxia hui autonomous region our story basically concerns three families and their progeny all surnamed ma who ran these northwest provinces like their own personal fiefdoms they committed a similar laundry list of abuses that warlords inflicted on the poor peasants who lived in these backward places. Conscription, oppressive taxation, you know, the usual stuff. But this is where our story takes place, way out west in these once unforgiving lands that we discussed quite a bit during the History of Xinjiang series. Historically, this was a land defined by Deserts, mountains, and desolate landscapes mixed with poverty, popular uprisings, and occasional famine. In the old imperial China days, these were the lands considered so horrible. One of the worst punishments that could be meted out to someone short of death was to be banished out there. But not the Maas, They were born and raised there. That Was their turf. They were right at home in the Northwest and lived very large, like many a feudal lord before them, taxing the populace and conscripting their young men. And they were, as I said, consummate opportunists, placing their loyalties with whoever offered their clans the best deals. The big three, the three most famous and most notorious of the Ma family, were the so called Shibe San Ma, the three Ma's of the Northwest. Shi Bei means northwest, and San means three. These were Ma Feng, Ma Hong Kui, and Ma Hong Bin. The great China hand, Edgar Snow, author of Red Star Over China, who I plan to cover one day in a future podcast, he said there were four Ma's rather than three. Snow added Ma Ching into the mix. He was the brother of Ma Feng. So let's take a look at their story, and I'll do my best to try and sort them out for you. If you check the webpage for this episode at the uh, teacup.media website, you'll see I've conveniently listed all the names and showed who was related to who. Let's first look at the patriarchs, or founders, of the Ma family fortunes. These were three men, Ma Chan Ao, Ma Qian Ling, and Ma Haiyan. These three guys had sons and grandsons who went on to become the most prominent and notorious members of the Ma family of warlords. They're also referred to in the history books as the Ma Clique. A clique is just another name for a cabal or faction or gang. It's used often to describe the various Chinese warlord factions. First, let's look at the Founders. Machan Al lived during the Qing Dynasty from 1830 to 1886. He was a Muslim general who got the ball rolling for the Maz when he defected to the side of the Qing army during the Dungan Revolt, which is also known in some history books as the Hui Minorities War. It lasted from 1862 to 1877. The Dungan Revolt was a big free-for-all with no single leader and no common cause other than perhaps a common hatred of the Qing dynasty, and there were all kinds of conflicting interests. Ma Chan-ao was one of these rebels involved in the revolt. The Hui of China were referred to as Dongans by the people of Central Asia and later Soviet Central Asia. The Dongans were descended from Muslims who had fled persecution during the days of imperial Russia. They looked just like Han Chinese and spoke a dialect of Mandarin. The Muslim rebellion was fast-spreading and began in Shanxi province. The Qing military had been stretched to the limits by the Taipings, but nonetheless, they were able to put the rebellion down in Shanxi, and the Dongans moved west to Gansu. In 1867, the Qing imperial government sent one of their most capable generals to the northwest to deal with this situation. This was Zhou Zongtang. He was made the Governor-General of Shanxi and Gansu, in his first order of business, once the Taiping Rebellion ended in 1864, had been to put an end to the 17-year-old Nian Rebellion that had plagued northern China. And this was taken care of by 1868. With the Nian rebels out of the way, General Zuo then turned his modern European-equipped army on the Dongans, And it's right here, that our story of the Ma's begins. The Dongans have been fighting since 1862, and Tang was sent out west to deal with them beginning in 1867. So it all started with four men, Ma Chan Ao and his son Ma Anliang, and the other two were of no relation, and these were Ma Qianling and Ma Yen. They, along with another Muslim general, not a Ma, but named Dongfu Xiang, these stalwarts of the Muslim rebels in the Northwest all defected to Zhou Zongtang's Qing army. And that's how it all began. As a rebel at first leading his army against the Qing and later against General Zhou's army, Ma Chan Ao made the fateful decision to come over to the Qing side and help them in their efforts to quell the Dongans. This turned out to be a wise move in that the tide was turning, and it was only a matter of time when they would have been crushed by Zuo's army. But by defecting to the Qing side, Chan Al not only preserved the lives of his family, but laid the foundation for all that would follow for both his relatives and others sharing his surname. The forces he led were later absorbed into the Qing army. At the same time, amidst all this strife, Mohammed, Yakub, Beg, and Uzbek, who had made himself unwelcome in the Russian Empire in the 1860s, he saw the confusion going on in China and took advantage of the Qing dynasty's general weakness and had established a kingdom in Xinjiang after seizing most of the inhabited cities out there. This was late in the great game, a time when The British and Russians were trying to outmaneuver each other to influence the course of events in Central Asia. Jacob Beg was not a Hui. In fact, he was an enemy of the Hui, which made him, of course, an enemy of the Dongans. And he pretty much annihilated them and kicked them out of their lands. And then he allied himself with Russia and Britain, but wasn't able to get the Chinese to support him. The Chinese army... After it got its act together, went after Jakob Beg and put him away in 1877. All discussed in greater detail in that History of Xinjiang series. So the period of the 1860s, 1870s, and northwest China, from Shanxi to Xinjiang, was a time of great unrest. The whole place was just up for grabs, and the Qing had completely lost control thanks to the turbulence of the time. So the Maas got their start, first by defecting to the Qing and offering their full loyalty to the emperor and helping to quash all this unrest in China's northwest. And later, in one of their signature acts of loyalty to the Manchu emperor, they came to the aid of the throne during the Boxer Rebellion. General Dongfu Xiang, like all the Maas, was born in Gansu province, Linxia County, about a two-hour drive south of the capital, Lanzhou. Dong, headed up an all-Muslim private army known as the Gansu Braves, the Ganjun. Now, I had to do a double take because you have Dong Fuxiang and later on Ma Fuxiang. I thought it was a typo. Different surnames, but the same Chinese characters, Fuxiang. Ma Fuxiang was the son of Ma Qianling, who together with Ma Chan Ao again had come over to the side of General Zuo in the fight against the Dongans. Now these two Mas, Fuxiang and An Liang, they came from two different families. Fuxiang was the son of Ma Qianling, and An Liang was the son of Ma Zhan Ao, and it will be Ma An Liang up until his passing in 1918, who will replace his father as the most powerful and influential Ma leader of the Northwest. If your head is already spinning with all these Ma's, I suggest, again, take a peek at my website at teacup.media and look at the cheat sheet I prepared for all y'alls. If you think it's confusing now, let me tell you, we're only penetrating the epidermis of the second generation of the Ma family clique. There's a lot more. Dongfu Xiang, leader of the Gansu Braves, about 10,000 strong, were all Hui Chinese. They got called to Beijing in 1898. I'm sure you're all familiar with these times, CHP episodes 40 and 41, parts 6 and 7 of that Qing Dynasty overview. They based themselves there and served the emperor, or actually the Empress Dowager, China was down on its knees and getting whipped and humiliated in a way that even today provides the ultimate and fodder to energize any nationalists or xenophobes. The Qing had been beaten badly first by the Japanese and had already signed the Treaty of Shimonoseki in 1895. So I don't want to rehash the whole Boxer Rebellion, but suffice to say, the year 1900, the Empress Dowager Tzishi was calling the shots and she and her Manchu advisors invited the Gansu Braves in to help deal with the Western powers and Japan. The Gansu Braves were already present in Beijing since 1898, so the Empress Dowager conveniently had them on hand to defend against the foreigners when the time came. June 10th to 28th, 1900, a couple thousand foreign troops of the Seymour Expedition took off from Tianjin and marched on Beijing to go teach those Manchu royals a lesson. All manners of Chinese patriots and xenophobes have been getting a few things off their chest by whacking foreigners, burning churches, and tearing up railroad tracks. Railroads, of course, being one of the ultimate symbols of the West. We all know the Seymour expedition failed, thanks in part to the 5,000 Gansu Braves, led by Dongfu Xiang, who took advantage of their home field advantage, as well as the unpreparedness of the Western forces. And these zealous Muslim Gansu Braves carried out their attacks most enthusiastically against these invading forces, and man, they did an excellent job of harassing them and wrecking their plans to attack the capital. And on June 18th, we had the Battle of Langfang, where the Seymour expedition was totally outnumbered and outclassed, and despite doing considerable damage to the Gansu Braves, they had to hightail it back to Tianjin, where they had originally set out from. And all these poor souls holed up in the foreign legation quarter in Beijing, waiting to be rescued. They had to endure the whole 55-day siege, the Hollywood version of such, immortalized in another one of the great... Yellowface Hollywood productions of all time, 55 Days to Peking, with Charlton Heston, Ava Gardner, and David Niven, with the Empress Dowager Cixi, Ronglu, and Prince Duan, all portrayed in the movie by white folks. Anyways, we know it all ends badly for the Qing Dynasty. The Boxer Rebellion turned out to be a disastrous start of the 20th century for the Qing Dynasty. One of the more important Ma's killed in the Battle of the Foreign Legation was Ma Fu Lu. He was the brother of Ma Fu Xiang, again the son of Ma Qianling. Once Ma Fu Lu was killed, his brother Fu Xiang sort of stepped into his shoes and assumed more of a leadership role in the Muslim army. It was the Gansu braves who had the dubious honor, after the failure of the Boxer Rebellion, to escort the royal family to Chengde after they fled Beijing. Chengde, of course, also known as Zhehe, is 225 kilometers north of Beijing. It's where the Kangxi emperor built a summer residence up there to escape the Beijing heat. Now the emperor's dowager, the emperor, and their retinue were escaping for another reason. Ma Xian, he was one of the more important Ma's. He was not only deeply rooted in his own Hui culture, but was also fully versed in the Confucian classics and lifestyle. Ma Fuxiang and Ma Anliang, they were hardcore supporters of the Qing dynasty. Muslims hated them for not supporting their particular rebellions. They remained loyal to the emperor to the very end. And when the end came for this Manchu dynasty and the Wuchang uprising happened in 1911, they were totally crushed. They had put all their chips on the Qing emperor, and with him out of the picture, they needed a new strategy. Ma armies had been no friends of the nationalists and had early on fought against Yuan Shikai's forces. But once the Republic of China was established, Ma Anliang ended up doing the same thing his father had done in 1872. When he defected to the forces of Zhou Tang. he defected to the nationalists, as did Mafu Xiang, and having these two most powerful warlords in the northwest on his side gave Yuan Shi Kai one less headache. Not only did he acquire a very effective military force, he made these two men his proxies in the northwest, and Mafu Xiang was essentially handed the province of Ningxia, and there he built his power base. Like all the Ma's I'll be discussing, Fu Xiang was born in Linxia County, Gansu province. He had a truly rich and amazing life, a soldier-soldier, a true warrior, a devout Muslim, a philanthropist, and someone who time and again came to the rescue of the government he served. And Ma'an Liang, for his troubles and loyal support, he was given the territory of the Gansu corridor, which for all intents and purposes, is where all the action was in Gansu province. And you know, this is how it worked. They made themselves useful to whoever was the prevailing power in the east, and they were always handsomely rewarded. Ma Chan Ao, Ma Qian Ling, and Ma Hai Yan during the Qing, and the next generation of Ma An Liang, Fu Lu, Fu Xiang, and two we haven't gotten to yet, Ma Qi and Ma Lin, they too were later rewarded by the central government. Ma Chi and Ma Lin were the sons of Ma Yen. Ma Yen, again, he served under Ma Zhang Ao and defected with him in eighteen seventy two. And these brothers fought against the Western forces during the Boxer Rebellion, and for their loyalty and service to the emperor, the Ma Yen family had been given Xining, which is today the capital of Qinghai Province, and they became the warlords of that province. So, brothers Ma Anliang and Ma Guo Liang, as well as Ma Qi and Ma Lin, they were all given areas in Ningxia, Gansu, and Qinghai, all in northwest China, bordering Xinjiang and Tibet. It was a vast territory. And each of them built their bases in their respective territories. And as the warlord era began in China, they were perfectly positioned to enjoy all the things that all the other warlords got to enjoy. In the 10 part Warlords series, I mainly focused on everything happening in the eastern half of China. But there was also all this excitement happening out west. These warlords of the Ma clique, they ran a tight ship. I guess you could say they were as cruel and self serving as the next warlords. Nobody liked them, to put it succinctly. They made the most of their tight hold on power in their respective regions in the northwest. Parents had to hide their sons from fear of them getting conscripted into one of their armies. There was always war and an endless need for soldiers. They taxed anything that moved, and even things that didn't move. In this respect, they were no worse than their fellow warlords to the East during that era lasting from 1916 to 1928, though the after-effects lingered on into the 30s. And these progeny of Ma Mahjong Ao, Qian Ling, and Yen, they were all loyal KMT members. When there was a revolt in Tibet in 1918, the nationalists sent Ma Chi there to go deal with the situation. And to this day, Ma Chi is a hated name in Tibetan history, and the ethnic Tibetan people have even accused him of genocide. In addition to the very harsh treatment and the Desecration of one of the most sacred monasteries in Tibetan Buddhism, the Lebrong Monastery. Machi taxed them harshly for eight years before things lightened up. Among the Tibetan people, they're not admirers of the Ma clique and suffered from their oppression during the early years of the Warlord Era. Of the Uyghurs, Tibetans, and Hui, only the Hui opted to hang in there and remain part of the new republic, and it was the Ma clique who carried water for their allies in eastern China, and later on for Jiang Kai-shek and the KMT. Ma Fu Xiang and Jiang Kai-shek were said to be Jie Bai Xiong Di, or sworn brothers. Let's move on to the next generation. This is the generation that had to deal with the Chinese communists. These were the infamous Xi San Ma, the three Ma's of the northwest. They were, again, Ma Pufeng, Ma Hong Kui and Ma Hongpin, and as I mentioned, Ma Bufang's Fang's brother, Ma Pu is referred to as the fourth member of this infamous gang. They were Jiang Kai-shek's stalwarts up in the Northwest, and they took care of everything for the KMT. This initially involved violently putting down any natives who rose up in defiance of the regime. Then later on, they fought with the communists and to a lesser known extent, Fighting off the Japanese in the area. But this whole sparsely populated but vast region was run like a sultanate by these Ma warlords. And if they ruled like sultans, then their three sultanates were Gansu, Qinghai, and Ningxia. Ma Hongkwe was based in Ningxia, he was the son of Ma Fu Xiang. He was the richest and strongest of them all, and a brilliant general as well. It was said he owned 60% of the property in the province. Companies he controlled engaged in. All the major money-making businesses of the day. This was opium, salt, natural resources, fur trading, and of course, in true warlord fashion, he taxed the people mercilessly. He even printed his own currency, Ma Hongkui, he was a major force in his day. If you don't mind, I would like to quote an eyewitness report of a 26-year-old American State Department official who traveled through the region over a period of seven weeks. This included a visit to Ningxia in 1947. He was based in Beijing at the time, or Beiping as it was still called in 1947 when this Report was written 74 years ago. He got to meet Ma Hongkui, even dined with him. And this Foreign Service officer, now long retired, just turned 100 years old this year, and I have been honored to have him as a China History Podcast listener since the time I began the program. He wrote, quote, The most striking political characteristic of Ningxia province is its isolation from the rest of China. The provincial governor, Ma Hongkwe, accurately described by the China Weekly Review a few weeks ago as one of the four remaining warlords, has been in control of Ningxia for 15 years and has succeeded in setting himself up as the complete and unquestioned ruler of the province. All power radiates from him, all government officials are his personal appointees, all business is conducted with his consent and for his personal profit. All the people are his subjects. With regard to the central government, Ma rules a practically independent state, being allowed to do so by at least three circumstances a central government recognition that Ma and Ningxia are a bulwark against the communists, b central government preoccupation with more pressing matters elsewhere, and c the strength of Ma's own army. Despite its autocratic nature, The Ningxia government, in some respects, qualifies as a kind of benevolent despotism. This is without a doubt the kind of government which Governor Ma himself believes in and has tried to establish, for as he stated to me on several occasions, democracy? The people don't know what it means, nor do they care. They are too ignorant and worry only about having enough food to eat and clothes to wear. They need me to look after them. Judged by Chinese standards, Ningxia province is a model of efficiency and good administration. The roads are good, the irrigation canals are well maintained, steps have been taken to improve agriculture and plant trees. There have not been any communists to stir up trouble within the province and no alien political ideas. The streets inside Ningxia city are being widened and new buildings constructed, and taxes are apparently no higher than in any other province. End quote. Ma Hong Kui and the other three big Ma's, or big horses as they were also called, Ma being not just a surname but the Chinese character for horse, they were the scourge of the Chinese communists. They inflicted no small amount of pain and suffering on communist troops passing through their lands in the final stages of the Long March. The stories of the suffering of these long marchers. Pretty brutal, making life hard for the Shanxi-bound communists were Ma Feng and Ma Qing. These brothers were the sons of Ma Qi. Ma Feng was a veteran of many wars. Another true warrior from this Ma clique. Besides savaging the communists during the Long March, he also fought in Tibet and against the Japanese, and then in the Chinese Civil War against the communists and other local battles in the northwest. If you recall CHP48, the episode on the founding of the CCP, Mao Zedong, during the final stages of the long march, had one serious rival for the top leadership in the party. This was Zhang Guotao. Zhang Guotao was one of the founders of the CCP, which made him a very serious contender for Mao, as far as who would be the one leader of the Chinese communists. At the end of the long march, Mao's army and Zhang's army united. Zhang controlled 80,000 hardened troops, and Mao, after Ma Feng and Ma Bufeng were finished with them, only had 10,000 soldiers left. Mao and Zhang had a very nasty power struggle going on, and Zhang Guotao tried to use his various competitive advantages to wrest power away from Mao. Mao got wind of what Zhang Guotao had in mind, thanks to Ye Jianying and Yang Shangkun, two great revolutionaries who were Zhang Guotao men. At this most dramatic moment for the CCP, they both defected to Mao's camp, and they spilled the beans to Mao about Zhang's secret plans. And so Mao bolted with his army before Zhang Guotao could move against him. Zhang Tao thereupon executed his strategy to march on the southwest of China, something Mao had disagreed with. And in the process, Zhang's army first got annihilated in Sichuan province. By the time he was in full retreat, his army had been reduced from 80,000 men to 21,800. When he started heading back north, with his tail between his legs, he passed through Ma country. Then his 21,800 fighters were savagely defeated by the forces of Ma Feng and Ma Puching, and then once more by Ma Hongbin and Ma Zhongying. So his 80,000 troops, first reduced to 21,800, were, after the Ma armies were finished with them, whittled down to only 427 survivors. So when Zhang Guotao and his men staggered into Yan'an, Mao Zedong knew. Zhang Guotao was no longer a threat. Mao himself had suffered from being on the receiving end of attacks from these Ma armies, and he didn't even thank the Ma's for their contribution to making him the undisputed leader of the Chinese communists. That basically spelled the end for Zhang Guotao. He ended up defecting to the Nationalists in 1938 and first worked for Dai Li. He later left China and ended up in Canada, living a quiet life, and passed away there in 1979, outliving his rival by three years. Mao knew if he was ever going to have a chance to defeat the Ma Clique, he had to deal with them militarily. But how? These guys were a major force to be reckoned with. They had some serious firepower. And because of their effectiveness at conscripting the locals, they had a lot of manpower, too. Look what they did to Zhang Guotao's veterans. Mao could never forget how much his fellow long marchers had suffered at the hands of Ma armies. They were extremely strong militarily and had limitless resources and cash to spend. Mao in the mid-1930s had a ragtag army at best. The evolution of the Ma's, again to review, went from rebels to Qing loyalists to KMT loyalists, to warlords of the Chinese warlord era, and finally, they acted as the KMT's goons in the Northwest, fighting the communists. This was now the final chapter of their life on the Chinese mainland. Well, we all know who won out in the end, right? So how did they do that? The communist Red Army and the Ma Clique armies? Into the 1940s, it was still Too much of a mismatch militarily. You might recall from that CHP interview with Forgotten Weapons host Ian McCollum, there was a lot of weapons procurement going on all over China. Not only were the arsenals of China operating at full tilt, arms dealers from all over the world were gorging themselves on the profits being made, selling all this military equipment, arms, and ammunition to Chinese buyers. With these warlords in the Northwest, Cash was never a problem, they were always flush, and they got their hands on some serious firepower. But Mao and all his followers, they had a few strong cards in their hand, and one of them was their mastery at subversion. Using similar tactics that seemed to work so well out in the countryside with the peasants, the secret communist cells out in Ma territory, let it be known that if the local people put their chips on the CCP, they'd see things like abolishment of surtaxes, prohibition of conscription, cancellation of all debts. Yeah, debt cancellation, like land reform, was always a crowd pleaser, and it was an effective carrot to hang out in front of the local populace. Promises were made to the Hui people to give them more autonomy over their local government and economy. All these things worked very well to erode support for the Maas. And one other thing, because not all Muslims think alike, the communists were able to hone in on how to speak to these sectarian differences and use this as a political weapon against the Maz. These people who lived in the Northwest, many of them were ripe for manipulation. It wasn't too hard to So discord amongst the ranks of the Ma armies and around Ma territory in Ningxia, Gansu, and Qinghai. So all these things, as the word spread, made people stop and think about how much longer they wanted to support the Ma warlords with all their taxes and heavy-handed tactics all these decades... Despite the trains always running on time, Ma Kuei's reputation for oppressively taxing the locals was particularly notorious. But he did fight hard against the Japanese in the Northwest during the Second Sino-Japanese War. Militarily, Ma was no pushover. Once the Japanese were defeated and the final battle remained between the KMT and the CCP, Ma presented quite a challenge to the Red Army. When one of Mao's top generals, the legendary Peng De Huai, put too much heat on the KMT forces, Ma Kwe was called in and inflicted huge casualties on Peng's army. But as we all know, the Red Army prevailed, and ultimately that spelled the end to the Ma's and their perfect little world up in Ningxia, Gansu, Qinghai, and elsewhere. Ma Kwe fled first to Guangzhou, and then made his way to Taiwan, and then to San Francisco, and he ultimately ended up in L.A., not far from where I'm recording this podcast. He died in 1970. Ma Kwe was central to this whole period when Hui Muslim warlords of the Ma clan ruled the entire Northwest with an iron fist. He was the most notorious of them all. Not only for his effectiveness as a military leader, but also for his cruelty and for the wealth he amassed during the period he reigned in Ningxia. As for the other three main Ma's—Ma Fang, Ma, Ma Ching, and Ma Hongbin—they were all in the same mold of Ma Hongquay, though perhaps not as colorful. Mapu Fang had a hand in the massacre of Tibetans, Mongols, Kazakhs, and even fellow Hui, when the Red Army got their act together in 1948-49. They ultimately chased him out of the Northwest from his stronghold in Qinghai, and Ma Bufang first fled to Chongqing and then to Hong Kong. He tried his best to keep the fight alive against the communists, and from abroad did his best to stir things up and go back to China to put everything back the way it was. But... He ended up in Saudi Arabia, and later in Egypt, where he served as a diplomat in Cairo on behalf of the KMT, and then later he became ambassador to Saudi Arabia, and he died there in 1975. His older brother, Mapu Ching, he bailed from China in 1949 when all was lost. He ended up in Taiwan and worked for the Ministry of Defense. He remained committed to the Republic of China up until his death in Taipei, and nineteen seventy seven. Last was Ma Hongbin. He was locked in a power struggle with his cousin, Ma Hong and had a series of Ups and Downs, but in the end, he stayed behind in China and went over to the communists. He passed away in nineteen sixty in Gansu. He probably wouldn't have fared too well during the Cultural Revolution had he lived. These progeny of the Ma families that began with Ma Chan ao Ma Qianling, ling and Ma Ha yen had been written into the history books as major forces in northwest China for almost eight decades. With their collective actions, they played a role in shaping Chinese history. I left out giant swaths of this story, most notably I didn't discuss the life of Ma Zhongying, who also played starring roles in the history of these times. These warlord Ma's of China's Northwest were warriors in the true sense, and in between stuffing their pockets and amassing wealth, theirs was a life of constant warfare and battles, fighting the fight for first the Qing dynasty and later their republican allies in a part of China where they were the true masters. So, with that, We're going to close the book and bring down the curtains for now. This was just a short overview for you. We didn't get to all the Ma's in this episode, but we covered most of them. Thanks, as always, for listening. Once again, CHP Premium or Patreon, two ways you can support me and get around all those ads. Please consider that. As always, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from the City of Night. Take care, my friends. Until the next time, when we'll meet again on the Avenue. Think about coming back again. I'll be waiting here for you for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.